Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Isaiah 52. And the last time we looked at the message titled, Listen and Awake. And, you know, God was trying to get the attention of the Israelites, trying to get them to pay attention to his word. There was things he wanted them to do. And every time I talk about the last message, I put a quick blurb about something that I taught. Um, For those of you who are pleasers, we talked a little bit about the pleaser personality. Sometimes people think when they become Christians, they have to say yes to everything. They have to do every, and that's really not the case. So if you didn't get last Sunday's message, you can get it free online. Uh, we talked about pleasers, and uh, it's more important to please God than to please people. So don't feel so stressed out that, you know, oh, I, I want people to like me, and I want them to think I'm good, so I have to say yes to everything. It's really not the case. Okay, but you can, you can see that in his word. Uh, today, the message is titled, A New Life. A New Life, right? And he, that even sounds great, A New Life. Uh, you know, God was doing some great work with his people, roughly 700 B.C. Uh, you can see throughout history his involvement with his people. Uh, but he also wants to do something new with us as well. And for those who... You know, and, and I, I run into this. I actually was one of those people in college, in high school. I didn't think I could get saved. I didn't think that I was good enough. I was involved in some things I shouldn't have been involved with. But, uh, you know, the more somebody had pretty much dragged me, bribed me to come to a church, and I started hearing the word, and over time I thought, wow, this could be for me. So I kind of started to soften up inside, a new life. And you might be here this morning that you're struggling, you know, you're invo- maybe you're involved in some things that you know are not pleasing to God, and you kind of feel, well, eventually one of these days I'll get cleaned up first, and then I'll come to him. But that's not how it works, because he's the one who's perfect. He helps us. If we try to do it on our own strength, it's never going to happen. We're just going to be pushed, kicking the can down the road for decades. So, you know, God's word is common sense. You go through the word, it just makes perfect sense. Um, one other thing that I wanted to say, and it's kind of unusual that I do this, but next Sunday, you really have to be here. I mean, I can't tell you what to do, but next Sunday, we're going to be talking about really what the Old Testament and the New Testament points to, Isaiah 53. In that chapter, it's all about the Messiah. It's all about Jesus. Hundreds of years prophesied before he even came to the earth. So I already got two people that are, you know, I, I got a few people that are going to come uh, that are very interested in Jesus. They're interested in why he's the Word of God, uh, the Son of God. So next Sunday, boy, if, if you have a friend or a loved one that you're really trying to get out to church, bribe them. You know, promise them lunch, promise them breakfast, promise them co-sign on their cart. No, I'm just kidding. Don't go that far. That goes back to the pleaser thing. But <laughs> So next Sunday is the Sunday that, believe me, you know, who can predict hundreds of years you know, 700 years. The United States ha- is not even that old, by the way. So we put this in perspective. God's prophesying something, incredible events in the future, and, and his, his prophets are writing it down as he's talking to them. And then 700 years later, Jesus comes and everything that was written comes to pass. That is really excited. Amen. So we're going to look at this in five parts. and We're going to jump in. Isaiah 52 in the Old Testament. He says... Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. Shake yourself from the dust, arise and sit down, O Jerusalem, loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So one out of five is awake, awake, Zion or Jerusalem, and I'll talk about the difference. Now let's remember, this is... Chapter delineations came hundreds of years later after the Bible was written. The Bible's inspired by God, by the Holy Spirit. Chapter delineations were done by man later on just to make it easier to find certain references. So understand that we're going through this book in one, this prophetic scroll in one continuous thought. So if you weren't here last Sunday or you're new to the church, I've got to give you a little context, which is very important. 
So what happened was, context of the last chapter, is Jerusalem, the city, was under a, a spiritual punishment in a sense. So much wickedness, and this was supposed to be God's people. So much evil, so much wickedness in the city, and God just kind of let go of his protective hand. But what's happening is Jerusalem, you know, the Israelites are repentant. You know, their, their punishment has is, is kind of ended. And what he's trying to do is get them jazzed up, get them excited, because there's going to be this new life of revitalization and restoration. So he tells them, A, to put on strength. And I love this because even for us, you know, Christians are really, we're not supposed to be physically lazy or spiritually lazy. There's going to be times that God calls us. He's going to do this great work. But he's also going to ask us to have some involvement in it because it's a relationship with God. So he's telling the city, put on strength. You know, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. I'm going to do this great work, but you have to make the journey, uh, the Israelites from Babylon all the way back to Jerusalem. So we can see it on a personal level as well. B, he says, loose yourself from your bonds and shake off the dust. You know, again, there's this, this Jerusalem was captive. You have to understand Bible literature. It is a, there's personifications, there's similes, there's metaphors. So he's, he's almost picturing Jerusalem, the city, as a person. So it, it helps us to understand when you humanize these inanimate objects, you know, you get a better picture of what God is saying here. So he's saying to them, he wants them to be free. You know, their bonds, they were taken captive. They were taken to a foreign land. Take off those bonds they, and shake off the dust. You're free. And I tell you, when you come to God, that's freeing. Because you, you kind of can shake off the, the things about yourself, the dysfunction, the negativity, the things that you would like to see change. And now you're giving it over to God. So there's a really a lot of good comparisons here. C, he says, put on beautiful garments. Again, it's a metaphor. If I could turn to Isaiah 61.3, and we're going to eventually get to that. But listen to this metaphoric language. It's actually quite beautiful. And he speaks about, I'll I'll start with two. Again, chapter delineations came later. He speaks about comforting all those who mourn, consoling those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes. You know, after the burning of the city, there was just ash everywhere. It was like charcoal. There were things burned down. God's like saying, I'm going I'm to give you beauty. This city's going to be restored. It's going to look beautiful. Watch what I can do. He's going to give them the oil of joy for mourning, right? And that's, that's a huge leap. You know, you mourn. You, you're sad when you mourn. You go, mourn. You go to a funeral. God's like, I want to give you the oil of joy for that. I want to change that. He says, the garment of praise, right? We, we going back to what we just read. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. You ever go through life and you just go through some difficulty? And I've been there. And you feel like there's like a weight on your chest. Oh, it's like even breathing's difficult. And you sigh. He's like, I want to give you the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And when he does a great work, you know what? We can't take credit for it. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. It was all you. So it continues, Jerusalem traded her garments of bondage for those of beauty. Now, there's some things in prophetic literature that speak about the time that the people were going through. And then there was sometimes that God would speak about a future occurrence. So he's speaking about a few things, God. He's telling them what's going to happen in 700 B.C. He's telling them what's going to happen in the first century with Jesus the Messiah. He's going to speak about things that happened past 2018. So for them, everything was pretty much the future. For us, for us a lot of it was the past. But we're reading some things that are going to happen in in the earth's future. Pretty neat stuff. Things that we can look forward to. So he speaks about the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you, Jerusalem. Now, there was a temporary reprieve where Jerusalem wasn't going to be attacked by these Gentile nations. But he's also speaking to our future. And and we see Jerusalem right now. We talked about this last Sunday. Uh, It's a cup of trembling. But... There's going to be things that happen where in the millennial kingdom, this awesome kingdom that the Lord sets up, that Jerusalem is going to be pristine, it's going to be beautiful, and there's going to be no more marauders, there's going to be no more war, right? We read about that. So it's going to be exciting. But I've got to say this. When you come to God, you also figuratively take off the bonds, the chains, right? So with Jerusalem, it was an actual occurrence, 
People were forced to, to submit. They were taken in droves to a foreign land in chains, literally. No Geneva Convention back then. Harsh, cruel. But when we come to God today, the application is that we can hold ourselves in spiritual bondage. Can't we? And I remember sitting, you know, as a young man in my 20s and hearing, and I wasn't saved yet, and I, I just was... You know, it just made me feel good. But it wasn't because the pastor was charismatic. It was because the Word had promised me things that I could have that I never thought I could have. My, my relationship with God, with God was always adversarial. Or when I was in a real pinch, I begged him you know, to spare me from the situation. And then I ignored him once. Obviously, I'm still here. So when I got out of it, it's like I used God. But as I started reading the Scripture, I realized that God wants to take off that bond, uh, that yoke of dysfunction. You see what I'm saying? And he wants me to come to him and have relationship. And that's when my life started to change. Very excited. And I got to tell you this too, that when, you, when God does a work with you spiritually, remember we're trichotomous, body, mind, spirit. We're three in one in a sense. When God does a work in us spiritually, mentally we start to function better. Or we don't talk about dysfunction. You, the DSM, you know, every, every few years or year, the, the psych, psychiatrist and the psychological community come out with these new manuals. More dysfunction, more problems that people are having, things related to social media, like things that we never thought about 50 years ago. And the book just keeps getting bigger and bigger, right, Ed? <laughs> so, so what happens is, you know, when you are born again of the Spirit, your mind starts to start functioning normally. You know, we weren't supposed, we weren't designed, we were designed to have fellowship with God, but because of sin, it throws everything off. And, it, and we become self-destructive in a way, and I'm going to talk about that in the next section. But I want to encourage you. Verse 3, continuing on, it says, For thus says the Lord, he's, he's speaking to Jerusalem, You have sold yourselves for nothing, and you shall be redeemed, bought back, without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to sojourn there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now therefore, what have I here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing? Those who rule over them make them wail, says the Lord. And my name is blasphemed continually every day. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. Two out of five is the Israelites, God didn't do this to them. They did it to themselves. It was self-imposed bondage. And people do that today. They get so entrenched in sin or addictions or something, and, and, they, and their, their life is a mess. And some tend to blame God. God's like, I had nothing to do with that. Those were your choices. I gave you free will. We could choose to ruin ourselves or we can choose to better ourselves. So as this city, they sold themselves into spiritual, they sold themselves into literally, literal slavery for nothing. Verse 5, it says, my people are taken away for nothing. You know, even if you, like let's say you go work for someone, um, you, you hope, you expect to get paid at the end of the day. They put themselves in a position of bondage with no compensation. That, that's really kind of kooky if you think about it. Um, and, but, he, but he says you will be redeemed without money, and that's kind of cool. You can almost see a picture later on of Jesus Christ because Jesus redeemed us. And folks, I know when, when Christ bought my soul back on the cross, didn't cost me anything. Didn't cost me a dime. So I know we're talking about Jerusalem, but we're also speaking about, he's speaking about most important thing, and we're going to find this out next Sunday, is that the entire Bible speaks about the Messiah. So, for me personally, it didn't cost me anything. All I had to do was believe and trust in Christ, and I'm a free man. I'm going to heaven. Not because I'm great, it's because God is great. However, it didn't cost me anything. God didn't pay with money, but Jesus paid it with his blood. Understand that. Somebody paid the price for our sin, because that's the way it works. It's a legal uh, situation. Uh, so Jesus, when he shed his blood on the cross, he paid for our sins. He gave his life. He took on our bad reputation and buried it took, it, took it to the grave with him. So understand that. Now, if you look at the different uh, names of the people back then, he speaks about Egypt. Children of Israel were in Egypt. It was a trial. They didn't really do anything to deserve it. But, you know, 
It's like we deal with trials, right? Sometimes we go through things that we didn't deserve. Um, in Assyria, Assyria and Babylon later on uh, took the Israelites' bondage, uh, took them captive, held them in bondage, and that was their fault because they, they engaged in such wicked practices that they really pushed God away. So they were like, hey, we want to run ourselves. And God let them have at it, but it didn't turn out very well for them. So that happened. And so we, we have situations today, too, where we could go through a trial and didn't do anything to deserve it, because this is a fallen world. Or um, we do things that harm ourselves, and then we suffer the consequences. But let me show you the goodness in here um, towards the end of this section. And, and there's always good news. See, God can, do, he can undo any mess up that we do to ourselves. That's the beauty of God. No matter how low you are, no matter how low you sink, God still loves you, still loves me. That's impressive. I don't think I would be doing this if I didn't know that because I sin too. I, I let myself down. Sometimes I'm harder on myself than God is on me. And he's like, I already forgave you. You're still holding it onto yourself. What are you doing that for? You know what I'm saying? So God is good. Uh, verse 5, it says, my people wail. But God heard their sufferings. If we could put up John sixteen thirty three. Fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus, speaking to his followers, he says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me, in Jesus Christ, you may have peace. And I talked about that emotional peace as well. In the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So we're not going to always see the fruit right, of, right away. And I know we live in a drive through society. I'm there too. You know, I, I just bought something from Amazon and I clicked on and I don't know how they get it to me that fast and they don't charge me shipping. I, I don't know, but somebody's really smart over there. But it's, you, get, you get addicted to the fast-paced society. You get addicted to, oh, this happens instantly. This is great. In God's economy, it doesn't always work like that. He, patience is a good thing. You see what I'm saying? So Jesus is saying, in this world, you're going to have suffering. You're going to have difficulties. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So you can have peace while you're going through it. And eventually, Jesus is saying, I'm going to remake the world into this utopia that man has been trying to make for thousands of years. And he's been uh, unsuccessful. All these little islands and all these little uh, microcosmic communities and communal societies, they all fail because sinners are heading it. But Christ is going to do an amazing thing. And he's going to, he has overcome the world already by what he did on the cross, but we're going to see a physical manifestation later on. Verse 5 through 6, he says that God says, my name is blasphemed. Now, for those of you that know the Bible really well, Romans 2.24 uh, refers to Ezekiel 16 regarding this, okay? And what happened was God's people, because of their actions, caused their neighbors to blaspheme God, their God, which is kind of weird. But listen, we all know Christians that, you know, people say, oh, I don't want to go to church, it's filled with hypocrites. We all know somebody, and maybe we were in the early days, we were that hypocrite. That somebody saw our life and they're like, well, I don't want to, God, I don't want to go to church if you're the picture of what Christians look like, if you are God's representative. So in the Old Testament, they did that too. But God was still merciful and he's still merciful to us. Hopefully we grow, you know, and, and I've been a bad witness before. I've been hypocritical before, but my desire is to grow and to change and to be a better uh, representation of who God is. I want people to come to God. I don't want to push them away. And that, hopefully that desire is the impetus for us to change and better ourselves under Christ. So we see this going on. Uh, but God was basically saying, listen, when you're leaving Babylon and, and everyone around sees the miracle, even though you caused by your bad witness the Gentiles to blaspheme me, right, God speaking, when they see what I do with you and the restoration and the joy and sending you back to Jerusalem, they're going to know that that's going to change. They're going to know who I am, that I did this. And it's going to be a miracle. So that's great too. And, and I, I look at that with us as well. God is merciful. His, his mercy wasn't just endemic to the Old Testament, right? His mercy is for us today as well, just a little bit differently. So I just want to encourage you that if you're going through something, it doesn't mean God forgot about you. 
It doesn't mean God doesn't love you. Jesus said, I just read it, in this world we're going to have tribulation. I know it would be very tempting to have some type of bubble, force field, that as we go through this world, nothing touches us. But then we wouldn't be able to feel and have relationships. And sometimes with relationships cause pain. Uh, But when God remakes everything, there won't be that sin element so we don't hurt each other. You see what I'm saying? But, and I would say this too, even if it's something that you caused... Now, I'm one of those types of people that take personal responsibility. And I'll I'll be in prayer. I'm like, you know what, Lord, I did this to myself. You know, I don't blame God. He's perfect. I can't blame God. Blame other people. I look in the mirror and say, hey, that's the guy that did it. You know what I'm saying? So, but I just ask the Lord for mercy. And he gives me mercy. But he does want us to be truthful. And he does want us to take personal responsibility. But he's there for us. He's there to catch us when we fall. Verse 7, continuing on. He says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good, t- good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Yes, he exists. He's real and he's working. Your watchmen shall lift up their voices. With their voices they shall sing together, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion. Break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So three, the city of Jerusalem tells a story about God. Now, I I love history. I probably love you know, I, I like American history, a little bit of Euro- European history, you know, world history. But, you know, longer I'm a Christian, I love biblical history. I love the Middle East. And, you know, so some of you might be saying, I'm really not even familiar with Jerusalem. But the more you study Jerusalem and the things that it's gone through, the more you see that God is real. There's so many ways to prove God is real through prophecy, through science, through, you know, the, the, the Christian who knows their Bible knows how to defend those who attack what they believe because they know what, that the Bible said things about microbiology before the, the microscope and the cosmos before the telescope. Yeah, people thought the earth was flat. That's because they weren't reading their Bible because the Bible doesn't say the earth is flat. So when you really look at it, say, I'm going off on a tangent. That's why I have notes now. I say, I'm just, I just wandered somewhere. So let me come back and bring myself back here. Uh, <laughs> where was I? Uh, so, <laughs> so Jerusalem, that's what it was. Jerusalem tells a story about God, you know? And the beautiful feet was a picture of Christ. You know, in the first century, people were depressed. There was corruption. The government was corrupt. The religious system was cr- Everything was terrible. There was no middle class. You were either dirt poor, which was most of the population, or you were the elites. It was a depressing time. Jesus comes and offers them a new world. He offers them salvation. He offers them eternal life. Oh, how beautiful are the, are the feet of those who bring this good news. Now, did it mean that Jesus had a mani-pedi and he had beautiful feet? That's not what it means. It's a metaphor, right? It's like, how beautiful is it when you're in some remote area and you're just eking out a living? And some stranger comes up to you and he shares this good news about you can go to heaven. God wants a relationship. What? What? Like you, you just, you, the representative just becomes beautiful. Right? So secondarily, this is why we have preachers. Right? We see that Jesus, and Jesus told us, or he told his followers, I'm going to ascend and go to be with the Father. It's you, I'm bestowing upon you to share the good news with the rest of the world. He says it. Go to the ends of the earth. So it's, it's a command. And our feet are beautiful too. So if you've been here and your whole life you've looked at your feet and think they're ugly, well, the Bible says that they're beautiful. So just encouraging with that. <laughs> I mean, we live in a culture, it's the beauty culture, right? I mean, people, I wouldn't even know how to airbrush anything, but people airbrush their pictures and everything is deception today. You know, supposedly Hollywood has like these sprays and these things that they put on and and it makes them, doesn't even look like them. You know, every, every imperfection, photoshopping. Um, I'm, I'm a dinosaur. I was born in 67. I, I'm amazed at what people can do with their pictures. But um, so that's the beauty culture that we live in. 
And I, I really feel bad, especially for young, young ladies, because the pressure to be beautiful is so burdensome. You know what I'm saying? But by whose standards? What is beauty? It's in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? You know what God's word says? It says that man, men and women, look at the outward appearance. All we see is the skin. All we see is what we think is beautiful, the clothes, the hair. But God says, but the Bible says God looks at the heart. So you might have a bunch of people lined up and and all of society would say, I think they're beautiful. And God may say, I think they're beautiful because I can see inside. And I'm going to tell you something. This lasts a lot more longer than this. So just keep that in mind. See, now with the video, everybody knows what I'm talking about. I used to say stuff and it was just the audio. What's this? What's he pointing to? Uh, Because they weren't here. Uh, Okay, we'll continue on. So Jerusalem... Uh, is the, the city proper. And Mount Zion was often spoken of. So you see this a lot, Jerusalem, Mount Zion. Mount Zion was better known or largely accepted as the Temple Mount. Uh, also the place of the sacrifices for sin. Also the place of, of Christ uh, you know, on the cross. Uh, so understand the, the, uh, the pictures in here even before these things happened. Okay? But Jerusalem has always told a story about God. And there's an expression that says, if you, one of the proofs that you, that you are looking for, for God, for one of the proofs, look to the Jew. For one of the proofs that there really is a God, look to Israel. Look to see how many times in history that some group tried to eradicate the Jewish people. And God stopped it. You know what I'm saying? He, He did a supernatural work. So it's really impressive when you look at that. So many proofs of the existence of God. In verse 8, he speaks about the watchman. The watchman. Well, Ezekiel 3.17 tells us that the watchmen were the prophets. The watchmen were the spiritual leaders. They would look out for the people. Even though when, by and large, the kings were corrupt, the religious system was corrupt, the majority of the people were just herd mentality, going along with all the bad things that were going. I kind of think about our country. Right? Even Christians get caught up in some weird stuff. You know, and they're, they're going with, with everybody because it's popular. And what did Jesus say? The, the, the road to hell, the destruction is, is the wide road, and a whole bunch of people are on it. He goes, follow the narrow road. Re- go against the tide. Because that's the road, that's my road that leads to eternal life. So you had all the, these things happening, but there was always a, a, a minority, a remnant of people who even though the whole culture was going apostate, were standing firm for the living God. And they took heat for it. And they took uh, loss of job opportunities, loss of financial income. But it didn't matter because they, were, they knew that their eternity was so much more important than the little, the little life that we live that's just a vapor on this earth. You see what I'm saying? Um, so the, the, the watchmen were looking out. They were excited when Jerusalem was restored. They're excited in any era when people come back and there's a revival and there's an excitement for the things of God. Verse 10, he says, the Lord will bear his arm. Now again, we get a lot of expressions from the scripture. Does, again, we talked about this last Sunday, about speak, speaking about God's arms, God's arms. Does he have biceps and triceps and you know, sinews? And He doesn't have that stuff. God is spirit. But what he would do is he would give a, a metaphor, a picture, so people could understand. So in a sense, God would bear his arm. He would roll up his sleeves, get to work. Right? We understand that. Roll up your sleeves, get to work, do something. You don't want your, your uh, clothes to be hindering any type of serious work that you're doing. So God will bear his arm. He's going to roll up his sleeves, and he's going to do a great work for his people. And in the end of the last verse, God is always witnessing to other nations, to unbelievers. So, I would just leave you with this. Our life can be a witness to, a, to the world too. Now, I'm going to shock you with something. You know, you, you go to some of these ministries and it's all hype. It's all emotion driven. You know, get the hair on your back of your neck to stand up and you know, to leave you leaving the church all excited. What did you learn? I don't know, but I feel good. That's, no, it's not good. You see what I'm saying? I'm going to tell you this, that your life, just like Jerusalem, it can be a witness of who God is in the good times, I'm not finished, in the bad times too. 
And I've been through those bad times where people are like, well, why do you still serve the Lord? Well, let me, let's talk about that. I see what's going on. I see the suffering. I see the, the, the sickness. I see all the, and, and just seeing what's going on in my life. Well, how do you, why do you still serve God? Well, God didn't do this to me. This is Jesus said that this, listen, believers, we're going to go through good times and bad times too. So I want my, my life to be a witness in the good times but also in the bad times. I want people to see that I'm never going to give up on God, no matter how bad it gets. And I got a 19-year-old, a son living with me. I'm never going to give up on God. He needs to see that too when he goes out into the world. This is something, a relationship with the Lord will carry you through your lifetime and all through eternity as well. Amen? All right. Now, now Wayne, say it loudly. Go ahead. All right. <laughs> we continue. Verse 11. It says, depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be at your rear guard. Four out of five, depart, depart. So, Last Sunday we were at listen, listen, awake, awake. What's God trying to say? And sometimes God has to be repetitive because we're humans and I've got to be told a few times sometimes, right? Um, sometimes my wife says, I, I told you twice. I'm like, oh, she told me the third time. Now I'm going to definitely do it. That's my fault, not hers, uh, because it's got to sink in, right? And, and sometimes we have to be told things a few times, don't we? So depart, depart. Listen, listen, awake, awake, now depart, depart. He's basically telling his people, I'm going to free you from this pagan land. I want you to go out. I want you to start a new life. I want you to have a fresh start. I want you to have a clean slate. He's saying when you leave Babylon, you know, some of the Israelites, unfortunately, were going along with the culture, just like today. Right? Some self-professed Christians are going along with the culture. They're not reading their word. They're really not praying enough, so they don't understand. And they're, they're following things that are detrimental to their spiritual health. So God is saying, leave all that stuff behind. Leave the bad habits in Babylon. Leave the idols, the dysfunction, and start out fresh. And that's a picture of the new life in Christ. Now again, if you say, oh, I want to get cleaned up first and then come to God, it's never going to happen. Sinners can't clean themselves. We can only do window dressing. Come to God. Let him help you with that stuff. And he was, want, he was trying to help the Israelites. He wants to help us as well. But let me just talk about second chances. One of the things I love about my country is the United States was founded on forgiveness. We're a forgiving nation. We're about second chances. A lot of countries still have debtors' prisons. We don't have that. We have due process. We have facing your accusers. You know, the United States is a great system. It's not perfect, but it's a great system. I think about a few things when I was in law enforcement. Uh, New Jersey clean slate for juveniles. It was a second chance for juveniles that got into something stupid and not to ruin their lives, right? PTI, pre-trial intervention. If you've maybe gotten involved with something and you got arrested, and for the most of your life, you, you know, you weren't a bad person, you got arrested. Now it's a blemish. PTI can help you. I'm getting into like, uh, listen, if you get in trouble, go see an attorney. Don't listen to, you know, legal counsel from the pulpit. But I'm letting you know what's out there. Hey, that's a good one. I got in trouble. Maybe I should go for PTI. So maybe I'm helping somebody today. But um, the IRS, right, if, you, if you're drowning in, in tax debt, they have the Fresh Start Initiative. Um, presidential pardons. Those are in the news now. Alice Johnson. I watched her when, when she got pre- uh, uh, pardoned by Trump. And she was tearful. She goes, I want to promise my country and my president that I'm going to, I'm going to start new. And she was so excited to, to be let out of prison. It was a, it was a really harsh prison, prison term for what this grandmother did. Um, and, and she was given, and the, the nation rejoiced that she was pardoned. There was, they're still talking about pardons. So what am I trying to say is that we love second chances. And we love to give people second chances. That's who we are as Americans. But that's also who we are as Christians. And I'm going to tell you something. People also want a second chance to go to heaven. You know what I'm saying? Again, I thought my relationship when I was younger was adversarial with the Lord. But when I started hearing the sermons and the word, I'm like, wow, I never knew this. There is hope for me. And here I am today, just giving back. I'm just thankful for what he's done for me. 
So we want a second chance. People want to go to heaven. But do we have responsibility? Well, Christ's finished work on the cross for our sins, we can't add anything to that. However, once that happens, once we've trusted in Him, we also have responsibility to maintain a relationship with the living God. Two parties involved in relationship. So He was telling the Israelites, I'm giving you another chance, but I also need your willing participation. Let's not go down this road again that got you here in the first place. And as believers, you know, knowing that our sins are paid for at the cross, they're forgiven, you know, we, we want to please God. This God that we never knew before, all of a sudden we come to Jesus and it's like new. He's like a parent, a long-lost parent that we kind of ran away from when we were kid, little and, and we're now reintroduced to him again. You know what I'm saying? It's this relationship. But you, you want to please that person who's done so much for you. You know, even in the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14 through 7, 1, about separation. Now, I have a litmus test here. This is important. As people will say to me, well, Pastor Joe, are you saying this? No. And if I meant that, or if I'm portraying that, then I apologize because I didn't mean that. So God is talking to us about separation sometimes, but not isolation. And you may see some groups, and I do question and I do disagree, because it's not reflective in the Scripture. You know, you still have orders of monks and certain people that they, they hide away. Nobody can see them. They can't have contact with the public. That's really not reflective in Scripture. We're actually to go into the world and share the good news. So if you had that good news, why would you keep it to yourself? You know, I've been to Amish country in Pennsylvania, and they're kind of cloistered too. It's not what God's talking about. Not reflected in Scripture. Not isolation, but separation sometimes. Now, my litmus test for this is, as a new believer, I was weak. I brand new Jesus. He'd just come up to receive Jesus. A few weeks, few months. And, and I have some friends, right? Almost all my friends are worldly people. They're not Christians. They get involved in some things and... You know, I would get involved and they would negatively influence me. So there was a time that I need just a little bit of separation, just to strengthen myself in the Lord. Now, I'm at a point now, uh, being a pastor for 15 years, that I could hang out with anybody. They could be Satanists, they could be drug dealers, they could be criminals. I've done prison ministry. They're not going to change me. So my litmus test for believers is if you're really new and you're fragile to the faith, be careful with some of your influences. If you think that that group is going to constantly negatively influence you, but there will become a point in time where you get stronger that it doesn't matter who you hang out with because you just want to positively influence them for God. And that's where I'm at. I don't care friends from high school, friends from college, friends from doing this, doing that professional, um, I'm always trying to tell people about God. And I want to encourage them because I want to see everybody get saved. I mean, that's really what it's all about, isn't it? So when you read the scripture, a lot of common sense in here. A lot of common sense. Verse 12. He says, go before them. The Lord's going to go before them. And we saw this in uh, the wilderness, right? God went before the children of Israel. And he had different manifestations where uh, smoke, fire, a cloud, but they always knew that, oh, there's the Lord, and they would follow him. But God says, I'm going to go in front of you, and I'm going to go behind you. Basically, we have another expression. You ever hear this expression? I got your back. Okay, that's a metaphor, but it's also literal. Why? Because human beings have two eyes in front of their heads. I can't see what's behind me right now. Hopefully, nobody's sneaking up on me. All right, we're good. So, let me make sure you're all awake. But when we say, I got your back, it means, I got your back. I'm behind you. I'm going to protect you. And this is what God was doing. When we look at the uh, Ephesians 6, the spiritual armor, there was no piece for the back to protect you. But God here, God is always going to be our rear guard. He's got our back. And um, I was talking to the Jamesburg officer earlier, and you know, when I was in law enforcement, if we would have to do practice for, God forbid, a school shooting or a corporation park shooting we would go in a four-man team with our assault rifles and you know all our different equipment 
and it used to be the diamond formation. Now it's the T formation, where you had three officers in the front. The one is the leader, and the two guys are on the flanks. The guy in the back, he's got the, the rifle, and he's going backwards. Now, I'm going to submit to you that that guy in the back is just as important as the team leader because he's got the back of the three guys facing forward and to the sides. Interesting, isn't it? So you can see pictures in the world, right, that the scripture is incredible. You can almost take anything in the world and look at something in the scripture and model it after that. But God is our rear guard. He's got our back. He always has and he always will. It's just a matter of trusting him. So I just want to ask you too, would you like a fresh start today? Would you like to come out of the world? And you might have friends that you thought had your back. How many times has this happened? And they didn't. (laughs) You might have people that you trusted. Instead of having your back, they stabbed you in the back. I mean, we oh, shaking heads. We've all experienced that at some point in time. But this is God. He doesn't operate that way. He never, you know, his loyalty for us is never abated. He's always there for us. Good stuff. Verse 13, uh, last few verses. It says... Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage, right, his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him for what had not been told them they shall see and what they had not heard they shall consider." What he does here is he goes into now messianic scripture. So five out of five, what we're going to end with is the Messiah's atonement. Remember what I said in scripture during prophecy, God would speak about things in different time periods. He would always try to help his people to see that Jesus was coming. And I'm going to tell you something in the New Testament for us as believers, everything that we read, especially in the New Testament points back to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Why? Because God loves us. That was the only way to save humanity. By somebody paying the price for sin. And we don't have the ability to do that. So God sent his son into the world to shed his blood for the remission of our sins. So we look at this. The Messiah's atonement. Uh, Verse 13, he was exalted, he was extolled. Now the son of God triumphed in what he set out to achieve. To the bystanders, a lot of them, who weren't spiritual, a bunch of people, listen, crucifixions, it was very weird in Roman times. It was almost like a a spectator event. Uh, People would be crucified, and uh, there there was those that would walk. And the Romans did it out in the public on purpose to put fear in the hearts of their citizens so nobody would mess with Rome. So a lot of people, passers-by, would see guys, sometimes women, up on crucified. Um, So... You think about the minds of all the people that walked past Jesus as he was being crucified. They didn't see what was going on in the spiritual realm. So to the average non-spiritual person, he's dying on a cross. He was an abject failure. But put, let's put up 1 Corinthians 1.18. What does the Apostle Paul say? For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. For those who are spiritually dying, for those who are on that wide road to destruction, when they die, they're oblivious. They're resisting God at every turn. So the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. I don't care what kind of degree they have, how smart they are, it doesn't matter. They're perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Same event seen by different people, different results registering in their minds. So those that saw and and didn't believe and resisted, even though Jesus was raising the dead, he was feeding people out of nothing, um, lame people were walking, that was the visible things that they could see. They just still rejected his message. Think about that for a minute. Verse 14, it said that his visage, his appearance was marred more than any other man. Again, this, Rome was nothing at the time that they was, this was written. So please keep this in mind. Rome was nobody. The Romans. Who? Who were they? That's literally the way it was. So, so God is, is giving us details of, of Christ coming before he even shows up. And these are the, the, his, his face. He was beat up by the religious leaders. He was beat up by the Romans. And people may say, well, why didn't he stop the beatings? He was God. Because he knew he had to go to the cross. 
the Romans and the religious leaders were willing participants, not knowing, sending him to that cross so he could die for our sins. Really deep stuff. I really can't even cover it in one Sunday. It's that deep. It's very intricate. And it goes all the way back to the Old Testament, Leviticus 17, about atonement for sins and the shedding of blood. So this is all legal. It it makes sense. It all kind of comes together like a puzzle. Verse 15, he will sprinkle many nations. Now, in the Old Testament, the priest, old, 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 old Old Testament, we're we're in the temple, uh, the innocent animal, unfortunately, the the blood was shed, and the, the priest would take the blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat inside the Holy of Holies inside of the temple, the lambs, year after year after year, so the people's sins could be atoned for When Jesus came as the Lamb of God, nobody had to catch him and have, you know, he willingly went to the cross. So you see this this picture, um, and Jesus, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, was our ultimate high priest. He was not only the sacrifice, the the, the lamb, in in a metaphorical sense, but he was also the priest performing the ceremony. So he sprinkled that blood. So when Jesus shed his blood, He made atonement for our sins. Really, really good stuff here. Continuing on, kings shut their mouths at him. Now, look at the way different people uh, dealt with Jesus. If you read the Gospels, King Herod, Pilate, the governor, um, they they would interview him and they would try to get him to say stuff and and he confounded them. Herod wanted him to do a miracle and Jesus refused to perform for him. And Herod didn't know what to do with him, so he sends him back to, to Pilate. Pontius Pilate interviews him and says, don't you understand, I can release you, I have that power? Jesus says to him, you wouldn't have that power if God didn't give it to you. And, and Herod, you, or Pilate, you could see, is frustrated with Jesus because he knows he's innocent and he has the power to release him, but Jesus isn't sticking up for himself. So the kings, the rulers, the dignitaries, they shut their mouths at him. The dignitaries from the east, from Persia, the Magi, came to worship Jesus as a toddler. And the Bible says that even Mary would ponder these things. She'd be quiet about it. She'd watch what was going on with her son. And she was just like blown away. Well, this is my son. Like they're worshiping him. They're giving him gold, myrrh, and frankincense. So everybody had a different reaction. Um, in Acts chapter 8, there was an Ethiopian dignitary who was reading Isaiah 53, which we're going to cover next Sunday, and asking Philip, who is this about? I have to know. And he explained to him that it was about Jesus. In his second coming, every single king and president of this world will be blown away that the lamb that once was 2,000 years ago is now coming back as the lion. It's going to blow minds. Minds blown. Right? The power brokers of the world will be equally astonished at both of his comings. The power brokers at first were astonished 2,000 years ago at his humiliation. You know, Pilate is scratching his head. Pilate's wife comes to Pilate and goes, "Don't, don't have anything to do with this man. I've suffered terrible things in a dream and a nightmare about this Jesus. You know, Herod, you know, Pilate wants to free him. Herod doesn't understand why he won't do a miracle. So they were astonished at his humiliation But they will also be astonished at his exaltation. Two comings. First one came, second one is yet to come. And you may wonder, how do we go from Babylon to Jesus? Again, because of God's love for us. So no matter what book you pick up, find me a book. Numbers, Leviticus, Genesis, Deuteronomy, Revelation, all points to Jesus. Why? Because he wanted us to be saved. So what does the world see regarding Christ? Well, what does academia see today in the United States? Fairy tale, foolishness, no clue. The fact that they won't research that, they refuse. They refuse to do an objective. And and was it the case for Christ? Lee Strobel was a reporter, an atheist. His wife becomes a Christian. He sets out on a mission. This is a true story. And I can give you dozens of names and a mission to destroy this fantasy about Jesus because he's driving him nuts that his wife became a Christian. He ends up, overwhelming evidence, becomes a Christian. All you got to do is do the research. So what the world sees regarding Christ, a lot of different opinions, not not all of them are good. Two, what we see regarding Christ. You know what we see? We don't just see somebody who hung out on a tree. What do we see? When we go through the Word, we see that God says, here's the curtain. This is the temporal world. And oftentimes in Scripture, he goes, watch this. He opens the curtain. He goes, now look. Now look. 
because the world doesn't see this, but you see this. God removes the curtain. It's an amazing thing. What the world will see, eventually they will all see. You may say, well, then why didn't Jesus, like all these questions, Jesus basically said he raised the dead, he, he healed the sick, he opened the eyes of the blind. What more do you want? What else can I do to get you to believe? And today, there's miracles too. And people still harden their hearts. So, going back to the context, Israel gets an opportunity for a new life physically and temporally. God wanted them, though, to see the bigger picture. They were so excited about a new home, <laughs> leaving this neighborhood of these pagans. They can't stand these people. And they were going to go to a new home. And sometimes Christians, we can get caught up in that, can't we? Ah, oh, my first house. Hey, that's great. A new car, a bigger car, you know, um, all these life events. But don't forget, there's a bigger picture here. We're not going to spend eternity here. Understand that. God always wants us to see the bigger picture. He gave the Israelites a chance at a new and a better life. And that God desires for everyone here. If you're here for the first time and you're seeking, it's not an accident. Believe me, nobody sends me emails and says, well, can you teach this section? Because I'm bringing so... I don't do that. I go through it periodically and methodically and contiguously. You know what I'm saying? I, I do it boom, boom, boom until the end. So God desires a new life for everyone here as well. My question to you is, if you don't know the Lord, would you like to turn the page of your life? Would you like to see what the next chapter of your life, what's written about it? Because God knows. He wrote it. But do you want to see that next chapter with him or without him? A new life. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you.